I think that most of you are aware that at this church, in terms of leadership, we practice a co-pastor model, a co-pastor model of leadership, which means, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with this, that Benjamin and I together do most of the duties you would associate with a senior pastor. So you probably are familiar, if you've been here for any length of time, that we preach equally every other week. It's one of us preaching. We're sharing those duties equally. And um, we try to, to lead our staff equally together and cast vision together, get together and, and come before the Lord to, to envision where we're headed as a church. All those things we, we share. And, and suffice it to say, this isn't the typical Western church model of leadership. This isn't the CEO model, right? The top down model that you see oftentimes in the West for leading. At some point after Benjamin had arrived, um, we had this meeting among pastors where a bunch of pastors get together and they sit around a table and they're going to share some some time together. And of course, when you're at those kinds of meetings, you, you go around first to make introductions in case the people there don't know you. And so we start going around the table and people are sharing where they're at and what their title is and their name. And we come around, it's me first and then Benjamin's next. And so I identify myself as Jason Abbott, a, a teaching pastor at Community Evangelical Free Church. And then Benjamin goes and he identifies himself as Benjamin Verbicek, a teaching pastor at Community Evangelical Free Church. And immediately a pastor from across the table breaks in and says, but who's the lead pastor? And so we took a moment, we, we looked at each other, and then we looked at him, and we began to describe uh, how we co-lead, how, how we share the responsibility of leading. And it obviously, to him, his face just, he, he didn't, it didn't register what we were talking about. And so he said, yeah, yeah, but, but when you have a disagreement, who gets to decide? And so we looked at each other again, and we were like, well, we would come together, as co-leaders, and, and we would find a way forward, and then in unity, we would lead forward that way. And that, that did not make any sense at all to him. And so we found ourselves in this strange way trying to explain co-pastor ministry to this man. And as we moved forward, this is what his face continually looked like. He just couldn't wrap his mind around the idea of co-pastor leadership. You can stop now. You get the point, right? We had blown his mind. His view of leadership in the church was limited. It was small. And our model was forcing him to have a bigger picture of how God might lead in his church, lead in our particular church context. And in a similar sense, this is what's going to happen to Job today in the chapters we're going to look at. Job's going to get his answer from God. He's going to have his mind blown. He's going to see that God is bigger than he could ever have imagined. And so God is going to work to give Job a bigger picture. And... It's going to be a shock to Job. It's going to blow his mind, but in the end, God's going to use this mind-blowing moment to bless Job and to bring grace to Job. And so we're going to look at this 
together. Now, I'm not going to read all of these chapters. There's a huge passage we're looking at today. But I am going to try to give you a panoramic sense of what's going on in these four chapters that we have before us. So we're going to take a panoramic view, right? A, a kind of a, a big view of these chapters. And then I'm going to hammer down on some details to help you understand these chapters. Here's how today's passage begins. This will give you a sense. This will set the stage for what's about to happen. Job chapter 38, verse 1, 2, and 3. Here's what the word of God says there. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, Job. I will question you, and you make it known to me. This is the word of God. Let's pray right now before we begin to dig into God's word. Will you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, my prayer is that I would not in any way, shape, or form darken your counsel this day. I want the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart on this passage to be acceptable in your sight. And we ask, as a congregation gathered, to dig into your holy word. We ask that you would open up our minds, that you would blow up our small views of you and that you would bless us in the process. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So as I was preparing this week, I wondered to myself um, if some of you wouldn't be disappointed with God's answer here to Job. Like if you read through these four chapters and you've been waiting all this time for God to finally show up on the scene and give Job an answer if you wouldn't object somewhat to the answer that God gives. I think, friends, that we're meant to be surprised that God doesn't give Job a direct answer. I think his friends, these three miserable comforters of him and Job, are waiting for a much more precise, direct answer to all of the suffering and pain that Job has been through. And yet, that's not the answer that God gives. Yet, if we think that God doesn't answer because he answers in this way, then we're wrong. Because this is an answer. It's not the answer that was expected, but it is an answer and it is profound. So in order to see the answer, we need to ask two questions of this text. These four chapters, two questions are going to guide us. First, what's God literally saying through the questions that he poses to Job? What is the literal meaning, the literal answer here given by God? And then second, what's God figuratively saying through these questions? What's the answer behind the answer? And I think this passage, this text, works at two different levels, and we want to see that today. So let's begin with what's God literally teaching us? We're going to ask that question. And the answer, in short, is this. God tells Job and us that we're small, and our knowledge of things is small, And simultaneously, 
by giving us that perspective, God is, is answering Job and us and saying, but I am big and my knowledge of things is big, right? Spread your arms as wide as you can. And I just want you to know that's an understatement, by the way, when I say God is big. At the moment you think you understand how big God is, he's bigger still. I'm just saying. It's impossible for us to get our minds around the magnitude of our creator and his creation. Now, just think about trying to answer some of these questions that God poses to Job, and you'll immediately get the sense of what I'm talking about here in this literal answer, that God is big and we are small. Chapter 38, verse 34 and 35. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? God looks at Job He looks at us. He says, can you control the weather? Can you send the lightning here or there? Do you have that kind of power? The answer, of course, is no. Or chapter 39, verse 26 and 27. God asks, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it your command that the eagle mounts up And makes his nest on high. Did you design the beasts? The birds that they may fly. Are you able to direct their paths in the air? And tell them how to behave? Of course, again, the answer is no. Only God can do that. Or chapter 40, verse 9 and 12. Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? If so, then, look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Can you see into the hearts of men and women? See the injustice there and bring justice. Uh, Can you take care of all the evil in this world? Are you that powerful? And again, the answer is No, I've heard Benjamin say many times that nobody stands on the north rim of the Grand Canyon in order to feel big. You don't go there to feel big. Nobody reads these chapters in Job. God's answer to Job and to us in order to feel big, do we? We don't don't read these questions and feel big. They put things in perspective. And that's the literal point. That's the literal point that they're making, is that God is big. God alone does these things. We cannot do these things. We don't have that kind of power. Uh, A while back, my five-year-old would regularly claim that he knew everything. And if you know Silas, then that's not hard to believe. He would claim he knew everything. So you would be describing something basic to him. So I remember like time zones, right? We travel back to Missouri and uh, we, we gain an hour. We travel back here and we lose an hour. And so you're trying to explain this to him. And he looks at you after you explain it. He goes, I already know that. And it got so bad that at a certain point we started asking him questions that he couldn't possibly know the answer to. Like, who's the 12th president of the United States, Silas? And he'd go... I already know that, but I'm not going to tell you. 
We're all prideful sinners, aren't we? We're all prideful sinners, like my son Silas displays in those kinds of know-it-all moments. And by the way, put your phones away. Zachary Taylor, 12th president of the United States, Zachary Taylor. I knew some of you are too curious. You're like, I got to get my phone out and figure out who the 12th president of the United States is. It's Zach Taylor, okay? Put the phone away. Stay with me. Friends, we often imagine, like my five-year-old, that we know more than we know. That we know everything. That if we ran the world, things would go better. And yet, that's, that's an outrageous idea. Most of us can't even run our households, our own lives well. Most of us don't know how to manage our own time. Now, we, we are limited. We are finite. We are powerless in so many ways to run our own lives and so we can't think in any way, shape, or form that we could run the universe, that we could do better than God is doing. That's a fallacious idea. That's uh, my five-year-old's mistake. That's Job's mistake and that's our mistake oftentimes. If we don't know the Lord as Savior, We won't know the Lord as Savior because somehow we think we are Savior. And God knows that. And God is so good. These questions are so good. They are not harsh. They are teaching a humbling lesson to Job and to us that will in the end bless us because we will recognize our limits and we will recognize that we need God. We need God. We need a savior. And this brings us to our second question, right? If that's the literal answer that's provided here in these chapters, what's God figuratively telling us? What's he telling Job? What's the answer behind that literal answer? Now here I only have time to give you a couple of examples of how God's Questions offer a humbling yet hopeful answer for those who are in the midst of suffering, how this can actually be an encouragement to Job in the midst of all his sufferings. I only got two examples, but we're going to get at these figures that we find here in the text. And I hope that this is a template that you can look at then and read through these chapters and do some study and recognize how God in this answer, this figurative answer, is giving Job and you and me hope. When darkness comes into our lives. So first we're going to look at uh, this figure of the sea. The figure of the sea. People around these parts love the beach. Now you know I'm not from around these parts because I said around these parts. I'm from the Midwest. And we don't go to the beach much in the Midwest because it entails a couple days drive. I mean maybe you go to Chicago or to the Great Lakes but that's not much of a beach. And so when my wife and I moved out here near the coast, we fell in love with the beach. We love going to the beach, going to the ocean, going to the sea. Well, if you love the ocean and you're a Christian, then you're likely concerned when you read the book of Revelation. You read the book of Revelation, especially at the end, you get towards the end, and you see this picture of the new heaven and the new earth. And you don't much like what you see in one particular part of a verse, right? Do some of you beach lovers know what verse I'm talking about? Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, 
which at the end says this, and the sea was no more. And all the beach lovers start lamenting and moaning. How can it be heaven without the sea? And a few of the more suspicious beach lovers yell out, it's a trick. Turn away. Right? It's not a trick. It's not a trick. It's figurative language to communicate a glorious truth. You see, in the Bible, the sea often is used to represent chaos and danger. It's a figure for chaos and danger. And so when we see this passage in Revelation chapter 21 verse 1, and we see that the sea is no more, we're not supposed to say there's literally no sea. We're supposed to understand that God has now dealt with chaos and danger forever. It's a glorious truth. It's a beautiful truth. It's an encouraging truth if we understand it. In that way, the world is now safe and secure. Well, now, in light of that, consider these questions God asked Job in chapter 38 about the sea. He says to this man who has experienced intense chaos and intense danger, this is what he says, verse 8 through verse 11. Who shut in the sea with doors when I made clouds its garment? And thick darkness its swaddling band. And prescribed limits for it. And set bars and doors. And said thus far shall you come. And no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Friends is God talking literally about creation? Certainly. That's one level of meaning. He's the creator. He made the sea. He made the beach. He created the waves. Yet at another level, he is speaking figuratively. He's asking, who limits chaos and danger in the world, Job? Who controls them and establishes their boundaries? Who can push back their proud waves, Job? And the answer is that only God does, only God can. Job knows he can't, doesn't he? At this point in his life, he knows he is incapable of turning the tide back. But this answer from God should bring him hope, a mysterious hope, but hope because he stands before now one who can turn back the tide of chaos, turn back the tide of danger. There is one who stands before him and sees him and knows his pain and suffering and says, I am in control. If you're in the midst of suffering right now, if, if you're dealing with hardships that I don't even know about, I want you to hear me say this clearly. There are not easy answers. There are not naive answers. There's mystery. So if you're in the midst of that right now, know that I'm not offering some Pollyannish answer for your pain and your suffering. But what I am saying is there is a deep, mysterious hope here in this passage for those in the midst of suffering. The God who's infinitely wiser than you are, and the God who's infinitely more powerful and capable 
than you are. It's also the God who can limit and push back the awful forces of chaos and danger in this world and in your life. And from this side of the cross, from this place in redemptive history where we stand, not only do we know that he can, but that he is going to. Right? We know, Revelation chapter 21, that he's going to do away with those things forever. So if you're experiencing chaos, experiencing chaos right now, if you're experiencing danger right now, if your world has been turned upside down, just know that God says, trust me, I'm in control. I can push those things back and I will do away with them forever. Well, next, consider the figure of darkness. We hardly get any real darkness in our world today. Not, not at least where we live, right? There's so much light pollution around. We don't get real darkness. Not like the ancients would have known. The ancients, in the days of Job, they would have known real darkness, right? Zero light pollution darkness. I remember being out in, in Wyoming at Yellowstone and looking up at the sky and seeing almost every star in the sky. It was amazing. I love that. But, but we don't know that kind of darkness. But the ancients did, and they knew also that that kind of darkness, it brought danger, right? We just had Halloween, right? All the scary movies come out at Halloween. That's about as close as we get to understanding darkness dangers when we watch a, a scary movie. They're always dimly lit, something mysterious and scary about them, right? There's this really... Um, really dumb uh, security commercial right now, um, security system commercial. It's like where there's a, a video camera in your doorbell, right? And you get a little speaker underneath it and you can be anywhere and you can watch on your phone who comes up to your door. Have you seen this commercial? In the first service, I had like five kids go, oh, I know that one. I'm like, you watch too much TV, man. But anyway, so th- these guys get out, these criminals uh, get out of their car right in front of this house, nice house, and they start to walk up to the front door. And uh, they approach the front door and they're like, what are we going to do? Now, here, here are two problems. One, if you're a criminal, you don't break into the front door. Okay? Here's the second problem with this commercial. If you've seen it, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's broad daylight. You don't go. Like, these are the dumbest criminals of all time. Like, did you ever watch Home Alone? I mean, seriously. It is pathetic what they do. And it's like, what are we going to do now? And this, like, sort of weak looking guy who's at the gym like on his treadmill who owns the house is looking at them on his phone he goes I know what I'd do I'd run if I were you it's like probably the most powerful he's ever felt in his life right he's not there to actually face the criminals but then they take off it's supposed to make you feel like you can be a superhero too with this security system but it's actually ridiculous no thieves come out at night right that's I mean that's where they come out thieves come out at night they don't come out in the middle of the day they do their deeds in the dark. And the ancients knew this well. And so what do you think they figured dark as being or night as being? Night was closely associated with evil and the workings of evil. And they did a similar thing with day. Day was a place where righteousness took place. Truth was exhibited. Right? And we have this to some extent now, but not in the ways that they did. And you actually see this figure as well in the book of Revelation. Revelation 22, verse 5. Remember, Revelation 21, verse 1, and there was no sea. 
Revelation 22, verse 5, and night will be no more. And all of you people who love to sleep are like, this is the worst. But no, it's not. It's saying God is going to do away with evil. The time of evil will be gone. That's the point. Again, it's supposed to be encouraging. Now, consider this truth in relationship to what the Lord says to Job here about darkness or night in chapter 38, verse 12 and 13. He asks these questions of Job. Job, have you commanded the morning since your days began that it might take hold of the earth and, notice this, the wicked be shaken out of it? What's going on there? This is a signal for us. The nighttime is the time for the wicked. And God is looking at Job and saying, you can't bring the dawn. You can't bring the light. I can. You can't shake the wicked out of darkness. You can't stop their evil deeds. But I can. God's saying, I see Job. I see you, I see your suffering, I see your pain, I see the injustices that have been done to you. I see, and I care. And again, this is supposed to be an encouragement to Job. Because if God sees and he cares, Job doesn't have to worry. He's a just God, and he will act. The Lord is saying here, a reckoning is coming, Job. The day will dawn, Job, when these things will be put away. We know that, right? Now, in our place in redemptive history, Revelation chapter 22, verse 5. We know that God is going to deal with these things. So let me say a few things here that I hope will meet you where you're at. If you have cancer, or if you have some awful disease or somebody that you love has some awful disease, then you need to know that God sees you and despises what you are suffering. He despises it. He hates these products of a sinful world far more than you ever could. He hates them. You need to know a reckoning is coming in Christ Jesus. God's going to one day disperse the darkness of disease once and for all. You need to know that. Or if you've been devastated by the death of a loved one, someone taken far too soon from your life, then you need to know that God sees your pain and your suffering. You need to know that a reckoning is on its way, that a day is going to dawn when God is going to work resurrection life into this creation and put death away for good. You need to know that. You need to be encouraged by that. Whatever darkness you're experiencing, and I don't know what those things are. I I couldn't pretend to know. Whatever darkness it is, know that the Lord God cares. He sees, and that a reckoning has been worked in the person of Jesus Christ, and that reckoning will be complete at the day that he comes back to usher in perfection in this world, the new heavens, the new earth. That is the Christian hope. That's the Christian hope. And it is a powerful hope. It is not naive. Look, if you're in the midst of those things right now, I'm not giving you simple answers. God's not providing Job with simple answers here. 
There are no black and white answers to these things in this place, this context, this fallen world. But God has given you a deep and mysterious hope. On uh, June the 17th, 2015, uh, a young man, um, he was motivated by hate and racism, walked into a manual African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and gunned down nine people at a Bible study. Those people had welcomed him into their midst, and he killed them. He sat through the whole Bible study and just killed them at the end. Some wondered after that, doubtlessly, where was God? Why didn't God intervene? Why didn't he stop this? Some probably scoffed. Where's God? Look at these people who believe in God. Where was he for them? I want you to know right now, I cannot, I don't know what the answer to that question is. I'm not providing easy answers. I do not know the reason for that event, that evil. I do not. What I do know, however, is that just two days after this horrific act of violence during the first hearing of the trial of the man who readily, readily admitted to doing the murders, to committing the crime, just two days later, the tremendous power of Jesus Christ was on full display as survivors of the attack and family members of the victims stepped up each in turn to offer this man who had taken tremendous things from them, things that could not be replaced. They offered him forgiveness and mercy and they begged him to turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness and mercy. They begged him to be their brother in Christ. Tremendous hope. Powerful hope. There is something divine in that. It is not of human beings alone. The media didn't know what to make of their mercy. The public didn't know what to make of their forgiveness. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then you should know what to make of that mercy and that forgiveness that they extended. You should know that mercy like that and forgiveness like that only comes through the experience of knowing the God who reigns and the God who relates. He reigns. He's in control. And he's personal. He relates to you. And he's working justice. Oh, not an easy justice right now for us, not the way that we would work it, but the kind of justice we need once and for all to put away this kind of evil forever from us. No easy answers. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, no matter what darkness befalls you, what darkness comes on you, what evil is perpetrated against you, you can have that tremendous and powerful hope in the person of Jesus Christ. And it will speak mind-blowing truth into a world that does not understand it, cannot understand it. 
apart from the same faith and the same Savior, a suffering Savior, who died for you and died for them and was raised for you and was raised for them and is now working his justice into our lives and ultimately into the world forever. Amen. That is our hope. That is powerful. And that is what we have in Jesus Christ. Let me pray as we close and we'll have a a closing song, an opportunity to praise in song our Savior. Will you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are big. You are greater than we could ever imagine. That you are in control, that you are sovereign. And that you are compassionate and caring and loving and personal. That you come down to meet Job and to give him an answer. Not the answer he expected, but the answer he needed. And that you're pleased to do the same for us. And to give us hope. That in Christ Jesus, one day, every tear will be wiped away from every eye. And all evil, chaos, and danger will be put away forever. We thank you for this tremendous hope through faith in Christ. May you receive the glory and the honor and the praise forever. Amen.